all that matters is. Wrong! This town deserves a better class of heavy metal podcast. I'm gonna get a. If you do not listen, then the hell with you. Walk through the gate of consciousness. Stop, stop, from Yes, welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket out. And thank you once again to Druids for providing the intro music. Please come be guests on this podcast. That'd be so awesome. I know, the Wicker Man isn't going to light himself on fire, but maybe he's not the only one who's burnt out. Hmm? Take a break. Come talk to me. Pitch made. Welcome to And Volume for All, a deeply reverent and lovingly irreverent exploration of the history, philosophy, and future of the greatest music in the world, heavy metal. This is episode three, Subgenres Attack, or Subgenregation, or Subgenre Got His Gun, or Subgenre Claude Van Damme. I don't know. I just I have no title for this, so... You know, find me on Metal Twitter, which is which is like it's like regular Twitter, only with you know m- more music and metal talk. But uh, find me there. Give me a name for this title for this podcast, and I will go back and I will change the title that I put on it, and then we will never speak of it again. And then go give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. Seriously, if you like this pod and you want others to suffer as you have suffered, that's the best way. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review, and let the world know that the volume, the volume it is for all. We, dear listener, have journeyed from the birth of heavy metal in 1970 through the new wave of British heavy metal, or NKOTB, in the 1980s, and we are now picking up a distress signal from the Kobayashi Maru of heavy metal podcasting, subgenres even though I will probably categorize all 412 bands that I name-check in the next two episodes perfectly and without error, I want you beautiful mother-punchers to send your beefs to me at AV4APOD, and I will not disagree with you. Because the first rule of Metal Club is you do not argue about subgenres in Metal Club. Oh, nope, sorry. I read that wrong. You do nothing but argue about subgenres in Metal Club. It looks like that's not the first rule, it's every rule. Except the last one was just as blackened crust gothcore. Where did this piece of paper come from? So caveats abound here, my friends. This is going to be a two, possibly three-parter. This topic is too much for just one semi-functional adult or episode. I'm going to be naming some bands today that, and in two weeks from now and maybe two weeks from then, that I had never heard until I started working on this episode. I have now, for better or for worse, heard them all and have cobbled together this breakdown of the major metal subgenres and the chronology of their development and or demise from a number of different sources, including, but not limited to, Encyclopedia Metalum, the Metal Archives, Sound of the Beast, the complete head-banging history of heavy metal by Ian Christ, Christ, Christie, Christ, 
Crust. Let's go with crust. The globe-trotting history of metal. Data visualization website by Carney Clears, which is totally awesome. And boundbymetal.com, an interactive metal genre graph. And finally, Heavy Metal 101 by MIT. Yes, that MIT. How cool is that? It's a cool website. So please, bear with me if I ignorantly ascribe the label of like, say, grindcore to a band that is merely grindcore adjacent, like O-Town. I'm kidding. Obviously, O-Town is a boy band from the aughts that are decidedly not grindcore. It's textbook death doom. We all know that. Not all the sources where I pulled my research from agree. Some of them don't even agree with themselves because I'll put the same band in two different subgenres, like categorizing neurosis as both sludge and post-metal, which they are. So go easy on me here, okay? In addition to being huh, a squanch over my head, in over my head. See, I can't even remember the, the word in. It's almost a voluntary response. No, see, it's an involuntary response, and I just can't say in. In addition to being in over my head here, I'm, I'm also quite stupid. So, oh, there's a side note. I made a joke last episode about uh, Lords of Chaos as a source for some history on black metal, and uh, fellow, fellow podcaster Greg from an excellent metal pod called So Far So Pod So What, a Megadeth podcast, slid into the old DMs to let me know that Lords of Chaos is rife with bullshit. I, I actually was aware of that, and I, I didn't uh, use the book, the film, or an actual Lord of Chaos for any of the information. I was, I was just making a stupid joke that kind of ended up making me look like a doofus. But uh, I wanted to say thank you because uh, Greg's looking out for me. I, I did uh, watch uh, Until the Light Takes Us, and I used some contemporaneous reporting on the church burnings and stuff like that to get the most accurate information that I can while quoting a Norwegian musician in the voice of the Swedish chef. Anyway, thank you, Greg, for the good advice that I just can't take. Isn't that ironic? And finally, before we get into it, I want to be clear. This is not an exercise on my part in gatekeeping, or gatecreeping, as the case may be. If I say Carcass is a grindcore band and you think it's a death metal band, that's okay. It's fun to argue about subgenre categories, but what we're really doing here is imposing an empirical anthropological methodology called cladogenesis on a subjective art form made up of a broadly diverse spectrum of musical influences and philosophies that could only be considered objectively consistent by an observer best described as a stupid butthole. Now, ironically, I am going to start our discussion of the subgenres where there are none at the beginning. In 1970, with the release of Black Sabbath's self-titled debut, the genre is born. Have I mentioned that yet? Did I mention that Black Sabbath is the first heavy metal? I don't know if I've mentioned that or not. Everything preceding that event can't really be considered a subgenre because something, something, the arrow of time and the second law of thermodynamics. What they are, I think, is influences. Deep Purple, Blue Cheer, Led Zeppelin, et al. They all heavily influenced the sound of metal in the 1970s, but I think Sabbath alone occupies the genre itself. Won't we? I'm so won't we. That, I mean, that had to be Tony Iommi. Uh, the interesting thing is that I think Sabbath not only creates the genre of heavy metal, but also the first subgenre. And it is known as Doom.
you lifted Black Sabbath's first 3.5 albums out of the 1970s and plunked them into 2022, we would categorize them as doom metal, likely causing someone in the comment section somewhere to offer Sabbath ripoff first, only to recognize that Sabbath doesn't exist yet and thereby causing a temporal spatial collapse in the fabric of reality that returns all things to the vacuous and eternal void preceding the Big Bang. So, hope you learned your lesson, Lemmy is God 6669. In my opinion, the first subgenre is doom metal. The song that I just played, Lord of This World, from Sabbath's third album, Master of Reality, is quintessential doom. It's highly rhythmic with a deliberate use of repetition. But it also has variation. The complexity of doom metal comes in the form of layers rather than a uh, complex melody or musical virtuosity like in Prague. Prague has all the beadly deedlies. It's a good way to define the, the way that I always differentiate between Prague and post metal is Prague sounds like beadly deedly and post metal sounds like be new nee new. So if you're listening to be new nee new, you know, that's going to be post. But if it's like beadly deedly deed, that's Prague. I'm sorry to be so scientific about it, but but a lot of times, the variations in Doom only exist so that a song has somewhere to go before it can return to what it is that's being repeated, usually guitar riff, but this time with some new element of the sound augmenting the original, like low-end feedback that, you know, comes in really hard, or a tempo change, or the dolorous keening of a black coven engulfed in flame. Doom is the subgenre that produces memes of snarling hairless cats subtitled when they play that nasty riff again, only slower. Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler both tune their instruments, uh, guitar and bass respectively, down a step and a half for a lot of this album, turning that big fat E string at the top, the lowest note on a standard tuning, into a C sharp. I believe it's a sharp. It's the one that looks like a hashtag. Hashtag sharp. I, I'm not. I'm not a musician, but um, which is the difference between. And that heavier sort of and what ends up being fuzzier, distorted guitar sound uh, is really a hallmark of doom, as is the sense of sort of cosmic despair that's just oozing out of Geezer's lyrics here. You're searching for your mind, don't know where to start, can't find the key to fit the lock on your heart. You think you know, but you are never quite sure. Your soul is ill, but you will not find the cure. Love that. Uh, words spoken presumably by the devil, natürlich. Um, I'm going to come back to Doom when I get to the mid-80s, uh, when it has sort of its second uh, breath here. But for each of these subgenres, I want to offer you my beloved bastards of reality, some tools with which to identify these subgenres so that you know at any given moment exactly how pretentious and exclusive you're going to want to be, okay? Because if you hesitate, if you hesitate, you're in real trouble because that's not a word. And then you'll just, you'll hesitate and it'll, everybody will be like, what the fuck is going on? And then I assume you'll all blow up. If you hesitate for even a moment, to roll your eyes when some poser noob confuses Gorgoroth with Gorguts, we will smell your fear, otherworlder. And it smells delicious. So, here are some indicator questions you can ask yourself while listening to heavy metal at a concert 
or a casual get-together in Glenn Danzig's living room that will help you to identify which subgenre you are more than likely listening to at the moment. Here are your doom metal indicators. Number one, are the metalheads in your vicinity slowly, rhythmically bobbing their heads with a look on their face that says, I'm not enjoying this. I just fucking need it. You are more than likely listening to doom metal at the moment. Number two, does the guitar tone sound like a bong rip tastes? Number three, is the first word in the band's name green, witch, iron, void, opium, ghost, stoned, fire, lord, earth, weed, druid, or candle? And is the second word coven, king, hand, cult, wizard, lung, gloom, lord again, mammoth, bastard, craft, sword, or, of course, doom? you are more than likely listening to doom metal at the moment. And fuck oh fuck do I want to hear Opium Sword so bad. I know they don't exist. I just want to hear it. So I would consider all those bands that we covered in the first episode, including Black Sabbath, proto-metal, which isn't so much a sub-genre as it is like a pre-genre. There are bands like Peth or like early witchcraft, witchcraft take von, uh, that are sometimes considered proto-metal, even though they're contemporary. But there's no reason to consider them really anything other than doom. Maybe maybe money. I'd do it for money. I would consider them something other than doom if you paid me. And when we move out of the early 70s and into the mid-70s, I think we're still in influence territory. But the music being made at this time has some very distinct resonances for the metal bands of the future. Oocher, oocher, oocher. Weird echo, I gotta fix that in post. Future prog metal bands were listening to the likes of King Crimson, Pink Floyd, Yes, and of course, the trio from Toronto, pronounced Toronto, that plays everything in the key of E. favorite song by the band Rush from 2112, a concept album about something to do with computers or religion or something. And at the same time, bands that would eventually come to be known as hardcore or grindcore were refusing to do their homework to music like this.
artists like the Bad Brains, Cro-Mags, Sex Pistols, and those fine young gents, the Damned, were infecting the youth of the 70s with their own toxic brand of socio to pseudo-political rebellion and body odor. Hard rock bands, much maligned by me, included ACDC, Van Halen, Aerosmith, and of course my first musical girlfriend, Def Leppard. And like Robert Oppenheimer failing to recognize the consequences of his actions until the proof arrived in the final form of a mushroom cloud over Hiroshima, David Bowie, T-Rex, the New York Dolls, and Slade were laying the groundwork for the coming of glam. Proto-glam there. Suffragette City by David Bowie. And yes, the coming of glam is spelled with a U. They are become glam. Glitterer of worlds. Somewhere in the late 70s to early 80s, gravity begins to pull those nebulous clouds of influential space dust into something with greater mass. As the first subgenres start to form around mu- musical movements, Musica movements. I became Barbara Walters right there. And the first subgenres begin to form or collate around musical movements. Group. My apologies to Barbara Walters' family. Groups of metal artists all begin swimming in the same pool, many of which had not seen a skimmer in quite some time. And this is where we get the movement that we talked about in episode two the new wave of British heavy metal, which as a subgenre, I was just tempted to call heavy metal because this is really where the genre starts to crystallize into what we think of when we say heavy metal, unless you're a chemist, in which case you think of tungsten. But I think you can't remove from this subgenre the fact that it was a transplant from one country to another and how that migration informed its sort of collective sound. So I decided to simply call this subgenre of British heavy metal Uh, Bear with me. British heavy metal. I know. I know. It's out there. Just walk with me. Make the leap from the lion's head. The bridge will appear. And again, you can see that this subgenre is a heavy influencer for subgenres to follow. Judas Priest foreshadowed thrash and speed on their 1978 album Stained Class, including one of the first popular uses of a double bass drum track on the song Exciter. Both thrash and speed would be unrecognizable were it not for Motorhead, and the same is true of Iron Maiden and power metal, and death metal slash black metal with the aforementioned Venom, because I mentioned them afore. Now this isn't exactly chronological, because the next few genres I'm going to talk about are all developing at roughly around the same time, so I hope you'll excuse me if I start time traveling a bit here. Just stop me when I start to vanish out of my old family photos. But... Somewhere in the early to mid-80s, the fine lines of separation between subgenres got a bit thicker and a bit blacker, like the eye sockets and lip lines of one Danish frontman known as King Diamond and his band of merry malisfits, Merciful Fate.
That is Black Funeral. Is there another kind of... Does anyone have a fuchsia or like a taupe funeral? I would go to a taupe funeral. From the album Melissa, arguably part of the first wave of black metal, along with bands like Bathory, Celtic Frost, and these buttholes. That's mayhem. <laughs> With a song that I have no doubt is a reference to In Search of Lost Time, the historically acclaimed work of singular genius by 20th century French novelist Marcel Proust. The song is titled Chainsaw Gutsfuck. And I have no doubt that it's a reference to Proust because I've never read Proust. Makes it easy to be confident. The baseline provided there is by our old pal Varg Vikernes, the Count of Monte Grishnak, who is an actual murderer, and a lead guitar by Euronymous, who he actually murdered. Oh, and the lead singer, Dead, who is actually dead. Mayhem comes in a, a bit later, and I know I covered some of their sordid tale in the last episode, but for me... These moon calves who completely misunderstood and perverted the nature of heavy metal are like a big red glowing button that says, push to understand. And so I do. And then I never do. But I just keep pushing. I gotta push. You can't stop the push. In 1991, Mayhem's lead singer, Dead slid his own wrists, and then shot himself in the head with a shotgun in a house that the band owned. When Euronymous, the dead guy in waiting, discovered the body, he did that thing that people do when they go into shock where they, they call an ambulance even though it's obviously too late, and then he just he set the phone down and he collapsed on the floor and wept for, like, hours. Yeah, no, he didn't. No, he didn't do any of that. I'm just kidding. He took pictures of the lead singer's dead body and his brains leaking onto the floor. And then he took bits of the skull and he made necklaces to give to his friends. Yeah, and then later somebody used the picture uh, as a cover for a Mayhem bootleg. So. 2018, a true crime collectibles company sold one of the necklaces that Euronymous put in a letter to another musician. And he closed his correspondence with this. Okay, that should be all. I'm enclosing a little piece of dead's cranium in case you'd like to have it. Hear from you soon. Remember when people used to write letters? <laughs> Simpler time. So I'll just close out the mayhem section by saying I think all the murder, suicide, and prison time accrued by the members of mayhem just goes to show you how far some musicians are willing to go to avoid rehearsing. But we'll come back to black metal for their second wave. In the meantime, let's lighten things up and talk a bit about hardcore punk. The subgenre is generally known just as hardcore and came out of a reaction to post-punk and new wave bands. The music industry, commercialism, puppies, probably puppies. I don't know. Probably. A lot of metalhead listeners might be saying, Hey, bro, hardcore punk isn't metal. It's punk. Well, um, first of all, Hey yourself, bro. Second, at some point, I have to talk about the cores. The grind core, the metal core, the apple core, 
the manticore, etc. Okay, and I can't really do that unless I talk about where the core part of the name comes from, and it comes from hardcore punk. Bands like Black Flag, Agnostic Front, The Misfits-ish, kind of. And these guys, Minor Threat. is Screaming at Walls from the band's debut compilation First Two Seven Inches, a reference to the seven-inch records the DC group released in 1984. According to AllMusic, the blueprint for hardcore was simple. Play it louder, play it harder, play it faster. The music was relentless, the songs were brief, the riffs were basic, the vocals were shouted or screamed, and the records looked and sounded like they were made in someone's basement. Well, I mean, they were, so that sort of helps that thing. Um, Like many a musical movement, hardcore was born out of the reaction to a previous one. In this case, it was a reaction to what 70s punk had turned into, namely post-punk and new wave. Bands like Duran Duran, Tears for Fears, Flock of Seagulls, and George Costanza's The Human League. New wave was melodic, avant-garde, and heavily produced, while hardcore was all DIY and FU. It was highly critical, intensely political, and very, very aggressive, especially the drumming. And that little tidbit is going to be important for a number of submetal genres in the future. Oocher, oocher, oocher. God damn it, did someone leave a door open or something? Why is it doing that? The hardcore movement was also what spawned the concert-going practice of slam dancing that would later evolve into the metal mosh pit. Minor Threat were the band that inadvertently created the straight-edge movement of substance-free and fun-free punk with a song of the same name. Straight Edge, that was the the name. Where are my straight edge boys at? Uh, So how do you know if you are more than likely listening to hardcore at the moment? One, are you terrified? Two. Is everyone there, chain-smoking, bald, and also under the age of 25? 3. Does the frontman yell, Move the fuck up! Preceded by no one moving the fuck up? It is more than likely that you are listening to hardcore punk at the moment. Now, let's move along, because if you think those guys are scary, wait till you see Mick Mars and Drag. At roughly the same time in the early 80s, when hardcore punk was slamming its way to sobriety, bands like Motley Crue, Cinderella, and Warrant were teasing Los Angeles and their bangs with a new kind of metal. Glam. That is Talk Dirty to Me by the band Poison. And I will. 
They say that contradiction is a sign of high culture, and there is nothing more contradictory than hypermasculine, oversexed men playing loud, aggressive music while dressed like women. However, there is no clearer sign of low culture than glam metal. That is Leather Boys with Electric Toys by Pretty Boy Floyd, which could be the worst song by the worst band in the history of terrible things. Glam is much poppier than its sister subgenres, and while the music is still loud and fast, it's also very clean, and their discographies consist mostly of party rock anthems like Poison's Nothing But A Good Time, glittered with the occasional ballad like Poison's Every Rose Has Its Thorn. Talking about Poison a lot. Okay, full disclosure, Poison was one of my gateway bands. I played a VHS of Poison's music videos when I was a kid that my parents never should have allowed me to watch on a somewhat regular basis. So I have a special place in my heart for Poison. It's a, there's a tiny little feather boa, fingerless leather gloves, and like a little, you know, like a little neck scarf kind of ties at the side there. And as a side note, uh, glam metal contains two of my biggest pet peeves in music as an adult. Songs that unironically feature the phrase rock and roll, and songs in which a dude describes sex he wants to have or is currently having. And the latter does not have anything to do with morality. I am no Samuel Alito when it comes to the bone zone. Holy shit, I just totally grossed myself out. I, like sick, the sound of my own mouth. But I am decidedly pro-sex when I'm the one that's doing the sex. I I'm just not sure how I'm supposed to feel about, like, David Lee Roth or something having sex. Like, do I root for him? And if so, why? Because if, I if I'm going to be honest, deep, deep down, I don't really care about David Lee Roth's happiness. You know, what's the level of enthusiasm he wants me to have here? Just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot in it for me. And songs that name check rock and roll, well, they just suck shit. Okay, old time rock and roll, that song sucks. It's only rock and roll, but I like it, really sucks. Rock and roll hoochie coo. That song sucks, and it's one in which a dude describes the sex that he wants to have or is currently having. Checks all the boxes. If you were, if you're, you're just, if you put rock and roll into a song, you're just trying too hard if you're using that phrase in what is ostensibly a rock and roll song. If the song rocks, they shouldn't have to tell us it rocks. We should just know it from the sound of the rocking that's happening coming out of the speaker or headphones. But when I was a kid, glam was gateway music because I wasn't old enough or mature enough to feel ways about stuff yet. The music was just energetic and fun and taboo. So Glam was totally successful at what it was trying to do for pubescent me, and it's only in hindsight that I realized that Glam Metal is 
you know, just pure boner garbage for my personal taste. So let me help you identify if what you are listening to is glam metal. One, does it sound happy, but kind of mean and sad at the same time? Two, are you trying to figure out how a heavy metal bassist managed to abscond with the contents of your Aunt Karen's closet? Three, is your Aunt Karen cool with it because she likes their ballady stuff? You are more than likely listening to glam metal at the moment. All right, let's get back to some evil shit. That is Raining Blood by the band Slayer! I I think I just had an aneurysm. Off of their third album, Rain in Blood, Slayer is one of the big four of thrash metal, a category that also includes Anthrax, Megadeth, and the band that I have been desperately wanting to talk about for three episodes. And now... I finally get to wait a little bit longer because I have to briefly touch on speed. The evolution of thrash metal begins with British heavy metal. And from there, bands like Exciter, Sodom, Anvil, and Metal Church, where my family and I attend regularly, took the technical skill and the instrumental virtuosity of the Nuwabam bands, combined it with the tempo of hardcore punk, and turned heavy metal into speed metal. It was precise, it was fast, and it was clean. But it was also limited. There was only so fast you could play, and eventually, all those bands kind of started to sound the same. And like when aging womanizer Harry Sanborn and his young girlfriend arrive at their family's beach house in the Hamptons only to find that her mother, dramatist Erica Berry, also plans to stay for the weekend, well, something's gotta give. What the fuck was that? Am I dying? Is my brain dying but my body's still alive? Gosh, I hope that's not what's happening. 
As opposed to speed, thrash was not clean. It also offered more musical variety with tempo changes and the ability to transition quickly from the melodic to the rhythmic and back. Philosophically, thrash was an aggressive reaction to the conservatism of the Reagan era, and it leaned heavily on those fundamental pillars of heavy metal, extremity and opposition. Subject matter ranged from war, to drug abuse, to tyrannical governance, cosmic horror, and that time-honored metal chestnut, the fucking apocalypse. Okay, I'm gonna take a break here, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion of potentially world-ending equestrian events and the men who love them. It's finally here, the big dance. Lock up your wives and children now. It's time to wield the blade. Because now, we've got some company when we come back. other titular heavy metal presence here at And Volume For All. Unless you think this is going to be a gush fest about the unparalleled brilliance of this band, I want you to know that from my point of view, the story that I'm about to tell is a tragedy. In common vernacular, people use the word tragedy to mean something that's just really sad. Like, sadder than the normal amount of sad. Like, a bunch of puppies that are really hungry, but then they're also dead. But the origin of tragedy comes from the ancient Greeks, and there's a very specific formula to it. It's focused on a central figure known as the tragic hero. He or she isn't a bad guy or gal. In fact, they're a great guy or gal, someone with incredible talent, vision, will, and most importantly, unlimited potential. They also have some kind of tragic flaw. For Oedipus Rex, who, because he refused to listen to good counsel, ended up killing his own father and marrying his own mother, the tragic flaw was lack of foresight, the inability to see the truth until it was too late. Also ended up making the family reunions really uncomfortable. And to punctuate the point of his lack of foresight, at the end of the play, the author, Sophocles, I think, has... Oedipus stab out his own eyes, which, in addition to being, you know, dramatically ironic, is also metal as fuck. The other thing to know about tragedy is that it doesn't mean not getting what you want. Tragic characters like Oedipus typically get exactly what they want, but in the course of obtaining it, 
They destroy everything that they love and the entire reason they wanted to achieve their goal in the first place. And when you're telling a story of an enormous theatrical tragedy, what better place is there to start than with a Danish prince? This is the tale of a handful of young, aspiring metalheads circling the binary partnership between a wealthy tennis protege from Denmark and a lower middle class child of California, divorce, and strict Christian scientist parents who refused modern medicine even as his mother was dying of cancer when he was only 16 years old. This unlikely pairing came together in 1981, bonded by their mutual love of heavy metal, their undeniable gifts as musicians and businessmen, and their limitless ambition. Two years later, they would pioneer a niche subgenre of heavy metal, eventually becoming one of the best-selling and culturally ubiquitous musical acts of all time. And what it took to achieve this unprecedented level of success was the sacrifice of everything that once made them great. This is the story of Metallica. <laughs> Lars Ulrich's family moved to Newport Beach, California in 1980. In his home country of Denmark, Lars was going to be a world-class tennis player. Tennis player? Tennis guy? Tennessee? But it turns out that America is a big place, and being exceptional in a country of 6 million people is more plausible than in a country of 350 million. So he turned his bizarre old man hobby into a bizarre young man hobby and started a metal band, or rather tried. Ulrich put out an ad in something called a newspaper. I guess it's like a blog for dead people. And two guys from another band called Leather Charm showed up. Hugh Tanner and the California kid I mentioned earlier, James Hetfield. So Lars doesn't have a band yet. But that doesn't stop him from securing a spot on a compilation album called Metal Massacre. Lars asked the founder of Metal Blade Records, Brian Slagle, uh, Slagle, Slagle, Slagle and Cream Cheese. He should start a law firm called Slagle and then find a guy named like Sreem Cheese. Slagle and Sreem Cheese. I'm not quite sure why I started talking about that. Lars asked the founder of Metal Blade Records, Brian Slagle, if he could get a spot on the album. Slagle agreed if Ulrich could get something recorded with his band in no time, to which Lars presumably responded, Band? Oh, yeah, a band. No, I definitely have one, and I will tell them that we have to record that one song we wrote, like bands do, and I'll let them know that when they get back from visiting my very real girlfriend who lives in Canada that no one can ever meet. That song was recorded and was featured not only on the Metal Massacre compilation, but also on the No Life to Leather demo the group put together after recruiting lead guitarist Dave Mustaine, who answered another one of those ads that I guess were popular in the 1790s or whatever, and trauma bassist Cliff Burton. This was after Mustaine and Hetfield, by some accounts, fired their previous bassist, Ron McGovney, by dumping his shit out of their van and driving off. The group had taken the name Metallica after Lars's friend Ron Quintana, a lot of Rons in this story, 
It's really, metal is really the story of Ron's. He was trying to choose between the name Metallica and Metal Mania for the name of his fanzine. Lars liked Metallica, so in what can only be described as the most Lars thing ever, he told Ron number two that he should go with Metal Mania, and then Lars took the name Metallica for his own band. The newly christened group played a number of gigs, including opening for New Album band Saxon at one show on their U.S. tour, and in 1983, Metallica was ready to record their debut album. So... Like Freddie, Daphne, Velma, Shaggy, and Scooby before them, they hopped into the mystery machine and drove across country to Rochester, New York. Rochester? Oh, Rochester. That's, wow, that's a joke for all of you 235-year-olds listening right now. But alas, Dave Mustaine ran afoul of his bandmates for being a violent alcoholic, while the rest of Metallica were just regular alcoholics, and replaced him with 20-year-old lead guitarist named Kirk Hammett, who remains their 20-year-old lead guitarist to this day. He came over from Exodus, another thrash band at the time. Luckily, Mustaine's firing was of absolutely no consequence and would have zero impact on the history of heavy metal Metallica or their legacy for the next 40-plus years, so I wouldn't worry about that. The lineup was set. James Hetfield on vocals and rhythm guitar, Cliff Burton on bass, Kirk Hammett on lead, and Lars Ulrich on drums, and mostly on beat. Metallica recorded their first album, opening with the song that they had written for the Metal Massacre compilation a year earlier. Hit the light, sight, sight, sight. Ooh, it worked for that one. Here it is, Hit the Lights. The band wanted to call the album Metal Up Your Ass because young Metallica just could not tell you enough times that they were a metal band making metal music. Metal. After the distributors told him they weren't going to release an album with a title as shockingly violent as Metal Up Your Ass, Metallica relented and renamed the album, opting for a far less aggressive and more inclusive title, Kill Em All. Also, apparently the original title of the first Adele record. That's why she ended up going with, uh, you know, going with her age because she couldn't use that. It was going to be Kill Em All by Adele, Adele Kills Again, also by Adele, and the third one would be I'm Not Kidding, I'm Really Killing People, By the Way, This Is Adele. I don't know, I guess she didn't know Metal Up Your Ass was available. This is in 1983, and with the benefit of hindsight, Metallica doesn't sound too radical. I mean, they sound, they sound radical. I would totally ollie my vision gator over this record. But in 2022, Kill Em All sounds like what we think of when we think of heavy metal. And I would argue that that speaks to just how important and influential Metallica has been for the genre. Let's wind the clocks back a year. The biggest 
metal releases of 1982 were Screaming for Vengeance by Judas Priest and The Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden, both of which we heard songs from in the last episode. On Screaming for Vengeance, the titular song starts with that high-pitched wail from Rob Halford, and he does almost the entire song in that glass-shattering falsetto vocal that confuses my dog and makes her sad. Meanwhile... Bruce Dickinson sounds like he's auditioning for Jean Valjean with that soaring operatic voice that doesn't do anything for my dog at all. She's just she's not a Maiden fan. That same year, a guy named Klaus Meine, hey Klaus, hand me the microphone stand, led his German glam rock quintet, The Scorpions, to number one on the US Billboard charts with this little ditty. Do you hear how clean that sounds? It's precise and efficient. It's even kind of pretty. Yeah, pretty metal, right, Klaus? Okay, so now here's the second track off of Kill 'Em All. And just FYI, there's a bit of a twist at the end of this one. Like Black Sabbath before them, Metallica puts a vision of the apocalypse on the A side of their debut. Now keep that Scorpions tune in the back of your ears as the quintessential example of what metal sounded like in the popular imagination as you listen to this next one, because they are drawing nearer. Ladies and gentlemen, The Four Horsemen. Comparing No One Like You and The Four Horsemen, it's like one of those Spot the Five Differences comics with the two pictures side by side of a family of ducks building sandcastles on the beach. And in the first picture, the daddy duck is wearing glasses, but in the second picture, they're all on fire. Metallica isn't the clean, pretty, melodic sound of what most people thought of as metal in 1982. Remember, there were all those vocal sort of histrionics that, like, Halford could do, that um, King Diamond could do, that Klaus Mina could do. That was what metal was, is the ability to go into that falsetto. Now, there were some speed bands like Accept that had a more aggressive sound. Venom certainly wasn't clean or pretty either, but, uh, you know, no one was really listening to Venom in 1983, and their following could never be described as anything more than cult. 
Except had some success with Balls to the Wall going gold, but then that was the beginning and the end of it. Kill 'em All, by contrast, has since been certified platinum three times over. Let me read that to you again. Kill 'em All, an album whose cover art is blood pooling around a recently used hammer and the shadow of a hand which recently used that hammer to, in effect, kill them all, has shipped a million copies over three times. In 1983, Metallica was, to many, a revelation. And I think a large part of that was because of James Hetfield. Hetfield couldn't do the vocal gymnastics that was in vogue for metal at the time. He wasn't King Diamond. He could bark a little, scream a little, but he sure as shit couldn't do what Halford did on Screaming for Vengeance. Hetfield was a baritone, and, and partly as a result of his limitations and what it meant for metal as a popular art form, we got a new kind of subgenre that supplanted melody with rhythm, vocal pyrotechnics with raw, untethered emotion, and the sound of speed metal with the sound of thrash. Now, at this point, it wasn't called thrash. It's like how a bunch of European serfs didn't wake up on New Year's Day of 1346 AD and go, Happy late Middle Ages, everybody. <coughs> oh, look, I just yacked up my own liver in the puddle of black pus. Ah, I'm sure it's nothing. At that point in the development of thrash, Metallica and others were calling it power metal which is a completely different genre that I'll cover briefly in the next episode because I don't care that much about it. But in the 1980s, thrash was often being referred to as power metal. And to further complicate things, Pantera's first album with Phil Anselmo in 1988 was even titled Power Metal, but was actually more glam metal with elements of speed. And now I don't have any idea what subgenre I'm even covering anymore. All right, thrash. Uh, the other novel aspect of Hetfield's musical approach is something called palm muting. Hetfield plays rhythm guitar, and one of the reasons those riffs sound so powerful and so precise is that he played them with the side of his palm on his strumming hand pressed down on the strings. I watched a number of videos where people who are actual musicians and understand things, explain the effect uh, this technique has on the sound, and it's really clear and powerful. It's so clearly what Metallica sound was. According to Ian Christie, or, or Crust, which is what they probably called him in his frat, in The Sound of the Beast, after Kill 'Em All, everyone was palm muting to try to imitate Hetfield's sound. I mean, Hetfield didn't invent palm muting. It's an ancient technique called pizzicato, so it was probably invented by some old, dead Italian dude who's probably named James Hetfield, eh? Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Never mind that the noise you heard. I said there would be a twist, and here you go. Bruce Willis has been a ghost this entire episode. I know. Also, most of the instrumentation for The Four Horsemen was written by one Dave Mustaine. In fact, Mustaine wrote three other songs on Kill 'Em All, Jump in the Fire, Phantom Lord, though I would not admit to that one if I were him, and Metal Militia. He also wrote Ride the Lightning and the intro for Call of Cthulhu on their second album, Ride the Lightning. But unlike Jimmy Page, Metallica gave Mustaine songwriting credits for all of them. Also unlike Jimmy Page, none of them had sex with 14-year-old girls. That's a true story. Lori Maddox. Google it. Dave Ellison. You are wanted at the reference desk. Dave Ellison at the reference desk.
When Mustaine later formed Megadeth, he put the original version of The Four Horsemen on Megadeth's album, Killing Is My Business, and Business Is Good. Well, sure, you weren't dealing with the inflation that we're dealing with. With the song's original lyrics and title, Mechanics, which was not about Armageddon, unless you mean Armageddon it on, it was about having sex in a gas station. One of the lyrics is, Made my drive shaft crank. Made my pistons bulge. Made my ball bearing melt from the heat. Okay, Dave, you're a romantic. We get it. Mustaine said in an interview that he put mechanics on the album to straighten up Metallica. And then he chastised the interviewer for the magazine's readers, voting Kirk Hammett as the best metal guitarist for his work on Kill 'Em All, pointing out that Hammett played the lead breaks written by Mustaine. So... Dave has a bit of shoulder nachos over the whole thing, and that makes sense. They all seem to be over it now. Mustaine played lead on all the songs he wrote for Metallica's 30th anniversary, and they all sleep on a giant pile of $100 bills, so who gives a shit? Dave Mustaine invented the song, and Metallica, for my money, perfected it. And maybe the same can be said of Thrash. Don't at me. Wait, no. Do at me. AV4A pod. The Metallica versus Megadeth debate will likely rage on until we are all just a thought cloud exchanging quantum information in the empty space where the Earth once was. But it doesn't really matter because they're both great and they both suck depending on the album and the issue being discussed. It doesn't really matter who was the best thrash band because at the end of the day, they are all so much better than Aerosmith. Debate over. I want to play one more bit of the song. Lars and James asked Mustaine to add a slower tempo bridge to the song. And Mustaine admitted he was being an asshole that day. That day? And played a slowed down sort of derivation of Sweet Home Alabama, where they wanted it. And it stayed in the song. So in the midst of this fire and brimstone face shredder, Metallica adds a sound which I think pretends what will make the next three albums so bloody fucking brilliant. Listen to this musical interlude toward the end of the track, and we'll talk about it on the other side. Out of the driving riff and lyrical doom comes this weeping lament, and it serves as this kind of verfremdungs effect that snaps you out of all that chaotic energy. Like the music is suddenly panning out to a wide shot, and it's just a panorama of loss and sadness and death, a lament that allows the listener to breathe for just a few gorgeous, heartbreaking moments before we are returned to that trampling riff 
heading into the end of the song. Metallica does this throughout their first four albums. There is so much emotion fueling all of the heaviness. It's beautiful and brutal, and it's some of the greatest music to come out of any metal subgenre and the whole of the genre itself. You hear them do it again on their third album, Master of Puppets, which seems to be getting a lot of attention right now because of Stranger Things. And I have nothing but envy for those kids who get to hear this music for the first time. Ugh, what would you do for a Klondike bar? In what is an absolute, well, masterpiece about drugs, Hetfield voices both sides of a conversation between addict and his addiction or master and slave. The song is so heavy and intense, and then just after the second chorus, they go into this. back with our master. Master! Metallica's third album is considered by so many to be their magnum opus. Even Rolling Stone, who did everything they possibly could early on to relegate heavy metal to an adolescent fan, had to bow down to their master. Master! Tim Holmes ended the 1986 review with this. Master of Puppets is the real thing. Metallica has the chops and, yes, subtlety to create a new metal. The list of accolades for puppets is so long that I couldn't even cover it in a one-hour episode. But for me, Metallica's true genius never shines brighter anywhere than on what I think is the most emotionally mature and politically charged album of the band's discography. And one half of the title of this podcast. So here it is. And justice for all. Hall of Justice painted green, money talking. Power won't be sent to the door, feel them stuckin'. Soon you'll please their appetite, they devour. Power of Justice crushes you, overpower. Yeah. 
And Justice For All is my favorite Metallica record for a few reasons. The first, and this may sound like something a normal person wouldn't say, but yeah, <laughs> welcome to the pod. It's the band's most sorrowful record. From Ride the Lightning through Master of Puppets, Metallica sounded like they were standing on the edge of something very dark and very deep, and that thing was seeping into the cracks of every moment on those records. On And Justice For All, it sounds to me like they stepped off that ledge and dived headlong into the darkness. And yes, I deliberately used the word ledge in that metaphor so as to avoid having to use the word cliff. I think so much of Metallica's art can be traced back to what happened in 1986. They signed to a major label, Elektra, released their first record to go gold, followed it up with a world tour, and it was on that tour, September 26, while traveling between dates in Sweden, Metallica's tour bus, for reasons that remain unsettled 38 years later, flipped onto its side, and bassist Cliff Burton was thrown out. When the bus landed, it came down on Burton, who died that night at the age of 24. And for any of you motherfuckers out there who just mumbled should have been Lars under your breath, no, it shouldn't. You can hate Lars and you can hate what he did to the band and you can say he's a shit drummer and a shit person and you're probably right, but don't fucking wish him dead. He's a human being. He has kids. You don't have to like him, okay? But should have been Lars is hackneyed tween internet troll garbage. It doesn't make you sound metal, it makes you sound like one of the Slender Man girls. I want to close out this episode with a song from And Justice For All, which is, I think, a confluence of so many threads that run through the history of heavy metal and the genesis of so much of what is to come. Heavy metal began in 1970 with a sound of rain, thunder, and a distant bell. For nearly two decades, the song Black Sabbath, whether or not you consider it their best work, was a quintessential example of what heavy metal is. What heavy metal is? If, in 1978, you asked a metalhead to choose one song that epitomizes metal, I would bet that Black Sabbath would top that list. And if you asked in 1988, I think the answer would be the third and final single from Metallica's fourth album. 1998? 2008? 2018? <laughs> For my money, this song is still the answer. And like Sabbath before them, Metallica introduces their magnum opus with a soundscape that lays out a thesis of sorrow, horror, and rage that comes from the feeling of powerlessness, the experience of a soldier at war. This is one.
good song right what's that there's more seven and a half minutes this song's seven and a half minutes long this song won a grammy in a category the grammys invented so that this song could win a grammy it went to number 35 in the u.s 13 in the uk five in australia and number one in finland and from what i understand in finland all that matters is how you finish no, that's porn. I'm thinking of porn. In porn, all that matters is how you finish. 1988 was the golden age of a television program called MTV. Now, no one in the year 2022 remembers what the letters once stood for, but archaeologists believe it may have had something to do with the cult of road-traveling 20-year-olds and the rules they established to fight off an encroaching colonial power from distant lands known only as the real world. I saw an interview... Metallica did with MTV after Jason Newstead joined the band and the interviewer was asking Lars if they were finally going to make a video for their upcoming album. Lars was less than enthusiastic, but someone must have eventually convinced him because on January 20th, 1989, one became the band's first music video and absolutely shattered a generation of tweens. The top MTV hits in 1988 were Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses, Pour Some Sugar On Me by Def Leppard, and Need You Tonight by In Excess. But Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, even Steve Winwood make an appearance. Welcome to the Jungle might have been the closest MTV got to anything even mildly upsetting by giving Axl Rose the Clockwork Orange tour of L.A. But if you couldn't tell from the lyrics, one is the story of a soldier presumably of Vietnam, as the song opens with the sound of the helicopter blade. And he's lost everything but his life to a landmine. His limbs, his senses, his hope for any future outside of what the character describes as being back in the womb. The video takes the story a step further, intercutting scenes from the 1971 World War I drama Johnny Got His Gun, in which the character of Joe was struck instead by an artillery shell, and in addition to losing his limbs and his senses, also lost the name Johnny. As the video progresses, the doctors keeping Joe artificially alive see that he is furiously nodding his head. As one builds to its dramatic climax, in which Metallica echoes the sound of machine gun fire, as Sabbath did with satanic horse hooves two decades earlier, it's revealed that Joe is attempting to communicate by furiously thrashing his head in Morse code. His message is a simple repetition. Kill me. Kill me. Kill me. Typically... This is when I would offer you some chips. But all I have is this interview with Metal Hammer. Michael Solomon co-directed the video for one and talked about how James walked out of the first cut, and Lars complained, this is our first video and you're covering up all our music. 
Well, some people say the same thing about your drumming, Lars. Solomon talked about the impact one had when Metallica finally came to MTV. He said, As I recall, it was the last video played on MTV's late-night heavy metal show, so it aired at about 3.30 a.m. on the West Coast, where I was. I thought that would be the only time slot MTV would ever give it, because it was so dark and unusual. You, yeah, you fucking think? Uh, but... A week after it aired, MTV had so many requests that they started playing it in daytime, among Michael Jackson and Bon Jovi videos, which was a huge surprise to me. It really affected people. It was a lightning-in-the-bottle moment that no one could have predicted. I'm surprised and humbled by its lasting impact. Someone recently sent me a copy of Rolling Stone featuring a hundred best videos of all time, and it was in the low 40s. It, well, it was number 42. Yeah, so the middle of the low 40s. I want to be accurate here, guy whose name I very much remember but choose not to say right now. He continued, For a lot of people, one is a very visceral and important part of their lives. So it is, video guy. So it is. And I think we ought to come back to it. So here it is. The moment metal had been waiting for. And I think the one that it's been trying to get back to ever since. The conclusion of one.
motherfucker. Oof. As Samuel Beckett once said, I can't go on. I'll go on. And so will Metallica. We have a lot more subgenres to cover in part two, possibly part three of this episode. But because we covered the rise of Metallica here at the end of part one, we're going to have to cover what I consider to be the fall of Metallica at the beginning of part two. You think Joe from one had it rough? Yeah, I got to go listen to St. Anger now. Okay, ride that limbless, deaf and blind thing out, Joe. See where it takes you. Can't be worse than St. Anger. I'm going to move on from Thrash after Metallica's decline and a bit more Megadeth at the top of the next episode and continue our tour of the subgenres. What about Anthrax? What about Slayer? Yeah, they are important too, and you should go listen to them, but I'm an hour into a two or potentially three-part episode, Chad. Fucking Chad. Here's how to identify Thrash. One, are you regularly hearing the phrase, Thrash is back, even and especially when in conversation completely unrelated to the topic of Thrash? Two, is someone currently lamenting the lack of bass on an album written 34 fucking years ago? Three, do they all seem to agree that fucking Lars, you are more than likely listening to thrash metal at the moment. When next we meet, Metallica fades to the Black Album and we will return to doom and talk about death. Metal. Oh man, that was the worst place I could have paused. I really gotta write these things down. Power metal, grindcore, sludge, mother fucking sludge. I love sludge. The second wave of black metal, groove, prog, goth, industrial, new, metalcore, stoner. Gotta find a better name for that. Doom again, post, and probably update prog one last time. And of course, we will cover the dark age they all endured during what I believe is the last true movement in modern popular music. When heavy metal gave birth to the one subgenre that threatened to destroy them all. Want to know what it is? Fuck around and find out. On the next and volume for all.